when we cook these dishes like scallion pancakes or if we're making salmon or if we're folding dumplings. They're like a catalyst for memories that I can bring up and it's like spark stories that I might not remember before, but then just the smell of a dish or like the flavor of a specific seasoning will bring that back up. And I love that that's a way that my boyfriend can get to know my dad and my family without having to be with them personally. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We examine how fathers, both literal and symbolic, influence pop culture, politics, and the lives of people of every generation from all over the world. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. Hi, this is Matthew. On today's episode of Tell Me About Your Father, I talk to two young queer food professionals, Seattle-based designer and cookbook author Frankie Gore and Yuhi Su, Brooklyn-based owner of the professional home kitchen Daddy's Got Chopsticks. Both have a deep connection to the food cooked by their fathers, and both have stories to tell about how cooking helps them retain a connection with him. You'll hear my conversation with Yuhi in the second half of this episode. But first up is Frankie Gore, a food writer, photographer, and designer. He's the food blogger behind Little Fat Boy, which won Saveur Blog of the Year. And more recently, he's the author of First Generation, published by 10 Speed Press, which features 80 recipes that take root in his childhood as a first-generation Taiwanese-American growing up in the Midwest. Alongside beautifully styled images, recipes, and step-by-step techniques, First Generation includes deeply personal stories about Frankie's life and family, including a detailed description of a fever dream that he once had that featured a shirtless Anthony Porowski from Queer Eye on Netflix. Included in the book is also a letter that he wrote to his late father, in which he reminisces about the Taiwanese dishes and American fast food they would share, the fact that he's gay, which he never got to tell his father, and the ways in which he uses cooking certain foods to connect with his past. We posted Frankie's essay on Instagram at Tell Me About Your Father if you'd like to read it. In our conversation, Frankie talks about the process of writing the book, growing up Taiwanese-American in the 90s and early 2000s, the dishes that he'd make with his father as a kid, and what he thinks his fever dream about Antony Porowski was all about. Here's my conversation with Frankie Gore. The letter that you wrote to your father, which you posted online, is why I wanted to mm-hmm. talk to you. I mean, the book is stunning. The, the recipes are delicious, and I can't wait to make them. But it's Thank like you. this one statement that you made to your father that basically made me go, mm-hmm. oh my God, there's so much in this letter. So before we get to the scallion pancakes... What prompted you, not so much to write the book, but to confront Mm -hmm. and attempt to break down what you called an avoidance of vulnerability and carefully constructed facade that you, that you described it, that you inherited from your father? Like what prompted you to want to confront that right now? That's a really interesting question because yeah, like I said in that letter, I feel like most of my at least most of my adult life and even my childhood too. Like, I feel like my default is to put up a wall and put up a facade. I feel like my Instagram is like the perfect example of that. It's like highly curated. It is not really reflective at all of my life. It's very much a 
very specific version or piece or expression of of what I enjoy, which is food and the way I like to express myself. It was funny because when I started writing this book, I I think I approached it similarly to my Instagram where I was like, okay, it's going to be this really curated version of the foods that I grew up eating and the food that I that I love to cook. Um, and when I started to write some of the recipe blurbs, like my first drafts are all very much just descriptions of the food. They'd be like, oh, these are dumplings. They have really juicy pork and scallions. And it was devoid of anything personal. And that's almost like a protection for myself, Sure, I think. And then when people who were close to me started reading some of these first pieces that I was writing for the book, they were just like, um, <laughs> this doesn't sound like you at all. It feels like you're just copying or you just sound like you're just describing the food, but I literally know nothing about you. Whereas in my head, I'm like, oh, you know everything about me. It's like, you know, this is the food. Like that's, that is me. And I think a lot of people who are close to me are just like, no, that doesn't sound like you at all. Like your personality isn't in there. And a lot of the really interesting stuff that we know about you, it's not in the writing. And so I feel like that actually helped me a lot because it made me step back and be like, oh, wow. You know, I've said I've wanted to write a cookbook for so long it's been the bucket list dream of mine i feel like i had come to a crossroads where i was like okay if i'm gonna do this i should actually do this and not hold back at all and write the book that almost i just need to write for myself first and foremost which is to confront a lot of the things that uh this food um is tied to contextually so things like my identity about being taiwanese and american and things around my family and growing up in the Midwest and um, also holding two cultures in tension with each other and how that relates back to my family's immigrant story. You know, when you look at food, it's kind of just like a piece of a larger puzzle. And so as I started to look into that, I started to think about, um, okay, how do I actually put this down on paper and write the story that I need to write for myself, but also for people who might have similar stories and be in such, such similar situations growing up as a first generation immigrant. So that's kind of where the letter to my dad came about was as I was like reflecting on this recipe, which is a scallion pancake, which is something I grew up with. It was like my dad's favorite recipe that kind of brought back a lot of different memories and feeling. You wrote, I find myself searching for you everywhere, talking about your father, including in the food I cook. You're yearning for something, a connection with him. And because your your father died, right? When did your father die? Yes. He died when I was 24. So it's been about like seven years now. So, yeah. So that's why in the letter you say, I haven't spoken to you in seven years. Because yes. Because he correct. died. So it wasn't necessarily an estrangement before that? No. Okay. But you never came out to him though, right? No. So, yeah, we had a really good relationship. I think we were so similar in personality. So I feel like I could relate to him a lot and we were able to have really good conversations throughout my life. But yeah, coming out was the one thing that I never really opened up to him about. And it's funny because I came out maybe a year after he passed and I feel like his passing kind of was a catalyst for a lot of the retrospective thinking about my identity and my life. And it was the thing that pushed me to come out. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like, I always think about if he had never passed, like I wonder if I would have 
gone this route of exploring my identity and cooking all this food and learning about my family and my past and just like finding it within myself to come out. A lot of people will ask me like, you know, do you regret not coming out to your dad? And it's like a hard question to answer because I, I feel like I go back and forth sometimes. I wish I did, but then I'm like, well, if you hadn't passed, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I think the only thing I would describe as regret would be more around wishing he could see where I am now and the person I've become and the things that have brought me joy and have changed in my life as a result of um, a lot of the stuff that we went through as a family. But as yeah. a, overall, I feel good. I feel okay like now with like, you know, what's happened. I think the thing with coming out is sometimes it's not an option, right? You might not be ready. Yeah. And it's not a failure. It's like it you is. just weren't ready. And so yeah, totally. I think about that with my grandmother. I wish I'd been able to come out to my grandmother, but I wasn't ready at 16 to come out to anybody. So it's just, you know, it's like disappointing, but at the same time, it's out of your control in a way, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. As much as yeah, you're the like, one who comes out, but I mean, you know. Yeah. I feel like when you're on the other side of it, it's always like, oh, I wish I could have done this or that when I was younger or I came out earlier. But I think sometimes I forget pre-coming out all the heavy feelings, all the anxieties. It's something you want to let go of. It's so exhausting. Speaking of negotiating parts of one's own identity, there's a story in a book that I really loved in which the theme of your dad and your ethnicity and scallion pancakes converge that sheds light on the kind of man that your dad was. Can you tell that story? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. So when I was a kid, my dad's, one of his favorite foods was scallion pancakes. And a scallion pancake is essentially just a layered dough that has a bunch of scallions in it, and it's pan-fried with oil. So it's like this fried, layered, flaky, kind of like doughy, delicious carb. And yeah. so when you make it, the oil basically sizzles and it, creates this really distinct smell of fried carbs and scallion. And whenever my dad would make it, he would just cook it on the stove. To me, it was like this nostalgic smell of oil and scallion pancake. And my mom, she used to always complain about it. She'd always be like, hey, you turn on the vents or open all the windows because like, I don't want Frankie to go out of the house and have all his clothes smell like fried oil or scallion pancakes. Um, and people will know that he's, you know, super Asian. He'll smell really Asian to all his peers. So we like open all the windows and make sure or like not cook too many of them. And my dad was always just like, so what? We're Asian. Who cares? Why do you care so much? And my mom was always the opposite where she always cared about how we presented ourselves in the world. And so I feel like I grew up with two parents with very different ways of adapting to immigrating to the Midwest. So I feel like my dad was very much the type of person who was steadfast with his identity. He was just like, yeah, I am Taiwanese. That's where I'm from. I'm not going to hide it. Whereas I think my mom took it as much more of, um, I think she had like a survival mentality of if we're going to make it in America, we will do everything we can to do that. Even if that means making sure that we um, look like everyone else who's around us. And so I always had these two opposing voices as I was growing up as a kid. You know, in a way, what we gather from that about your dad is that he's like, I'm not going to apologize for who I am, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I know sometimes people have cognitive dissonance when it comes to sexuality, but it's almost like you can imagine him going, you're gay, yeah, it's okay. You're Asian. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, these are just who we are. Let's let's be who we are kind of thing. 
Yeah, totally. You write in the book about a fever dream that you had that featured a shirtless Anthony Porovsky, the handsome food expert on the Netflix show Queer Eye, as a kind of God proxy tour guide. Can you talk about that? Like, what do you think it actually meant? Yeah, so I can give a little context. So there's an essay in the book called Dinners with Anthony Porovsky. And I wrote that essay after I had this wild dream. It was around last year when I was finishing off the book. I remember waking up from this dream and writing in my Apple Notes app at four in the morning. I was like, oh my gosh, this dream was crazy. And it feels like I could write about it, but I wasn't sure. So then I like wrote it down in my notes and then went to bed. And then I woke up the next day and I read it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is super interesting. And so essentially, not to give too much away, but the essay is about me essentially traveling through different time periods of my family. And so it's a piece about my grandma and my parents um, as kids and as adults and the things that they've gone through. And Anthony's almost like the narrator in the dream. So he was essentially taking me through these different time periods. And essentially, it's about me discovering why I'm at the place that I am now and the opportunities that I've had are because of the generations past before me Um, and the things that my grandma and her parents, my mom, all the things they had to go through for me to be where I am today. That was all in this dream that I had more or less. And I wanted to write this fever dream into the book. And I didn't think that I would be able to publish it because I thought it was wild to have that kind of format in that sort of perspective in a cookbook um but my publisher was gracious enough to be like oh yeah this is this is interesting and i've always approached things with a sense of openness and i always want to push the envelope when it comes to creativity and i really wanted to do that with my writing too so when i had the opportunity to literally write in a fever dream about um family and generational passing of uh both trauma and knowledge and joy and sadness. Like I was like, I definitely have to do that. So Okay, so to me, it was as though Anthony became a kind of hot dad figure who came by to guide you on this like Dickensian journey of sorts. So, yeah. I mean, it makes, honestly, it makes sense to me. It, <laughs> did you feel like it was super cryptic? Like what did you yeah, think? Yeah, I mean, I, I've always found that I like to balance serious things like trauma and humor and joy and sadness. And I've found that in my writing style, that's what I've enjoyed to do the most. And so when I had this dream verbatim, I was like, oh, this is so odd and satisfyingly weird to play God, essentially, in this (laughs) story format. And coming from a household who was religious and who grew up going to the church, it just felt like a nod to that and also a wink to both my family's background with religion but then also being able to make references to the lgbt community and how those two can be one in the same like sure. they can coexist so yeah. like a subtle commentary on that too it felt fun to kind of play around with negotiating two really different identities is a major theme of the book. It plays out in the way that you've created very personal American Taiwanese versions of like iconic foods that you grew up eating. Can you talk about your struggle to assimilate as a kid? 
Yeah, I mean, I think part of it was from, like, I remember my mom telling me to, like, adapt and to, like, make sure to make it, especially. But I think for me, that was something I was just cognitively aware of on my own. Just being one of the only Asians in a very white community, I felt like my Asianness made me stand out a lot and it was called out a lot. And so I think by being recognized as Asian and people recognizing my differences as a kid, I quickly was like, okay, how do I subdue my Asian side so that I can be seen as everyone else or that people yeah. call me out for this specific part of my identity. And so I think for me, I very much as a kid separated my Taiwanese and my American side at home. I was that Taiwanese kid, like I would eat dumplings and noodles. And I loved like all these foods that like my family grew up with. But then as soon as I like, stepped out the door, I very much took all of that out and like my American side would kind of put on. And so they're always very separate. Um, you talk about how you had access to your grandmother's <laughs> cooking and did you ever have your friends over and were they like into the dishes that your family made? It was very rare that I would bring friends over and show them all the foods from my family. It was almost like I would have to switch. I'd be like, okay, someone who's not Taiwanese is coming. Bring out the pizza rolls and right. the fruit roll-ups and the cinnamon toast crunch. Like all things that I love, but right. I never felt comfortable unless they were someone who was super close to me. I think I had maybe one or two friends who was exposed to the food that I grew up with and that I felt comfortable sharing. But otherwise, if I was introducing someone into my house, like there was no way I'd be like bringing out sky and pancakes and dumplings. The smells of the, and the dishes themselves are just so different. And so right. I just didn't want to risk that. It's like a key thing. It's almost like you're sharing. I mean, you are sharing a really key part of your identity. And it's like, what if your mm -hmm. friends are like, this is disgusting. How are you going to feel? Like, exactly, yeah, I totally yeah. get, I, I get why you would not want to do yeah. that. So let's zero in on scallion pancakes because they're iconic. Um, how did your dad make them? Yeah, I remember he always made them on like the kitchen island. So um, essentially the process is you just combine flour and water and you knead it into this like firm dough and then you roll it out into these like giant circles and you sprinkle a bunch of chopped scallions and some salt and then you roll it into a snake and then you twist that almost like a cinnamon roll and then you flatten that so that creates like all these little layers i remember as a kid i always would help them out with little steps here and there like i would sprinkle scallions or i would be the person on the stove pan frying uh, but he was always the one who like did all the like rolling out of the dough just because it was like more of a technical thing and something that would probably mess up he always did most of the dough work shaping it into the actual pancakes and so yeah my dad always loved olive garden <laughs> so he always made spaghetti like spaghetti was another dish i associate with my dad he'd always get really shitty tomato sauce just from the grocery store and then get noodles and we would just have spaghetti and that was like something we would do and we would just like watch real fortune together <laughs> both my parents worked so they never were the type of people to cook elaborate meals just because they would always be so tired after work and they just want a quick meal that's comforting but also takes little time because my dad loved the olive garden so much we'd always try to recreate spaghetti so we'd always just have very standard noodles with spaghetti so right. that's where my love of italian food comes from it's just sure. eating 
uh, mediocre spaghetti that to me is pretty delicious. <laughs> and then um, he also loved um, McDonald's and Burger King. So I always associate Big Macs and Chicken McNuggets with them because we would always get the giant Chicken McNugget packs and dip them in honey mustard or honey. I knew that they would be working hard and that they would come home pretty tired. But usually I'd try to take advantage of that and be like, hey, I'm right. tired. Let's go to McDonald's. Yes. So that's kind of where my love of that side of my culture in terms of food comes from too. The one dish that he loved to cook in terms of like a meal was a soy glazed salmon. So he would essentially just get a salmon filet and pan fry it. He would put some oil on it, salt, pepper, and then he would pan fry the sides to get them crispy. And then he would make essentially a soy and honey. Um, he'd put a little bit of ketchup and a little bit of vinegar and then make that into a glaze and then just pour it over on top and serve it with some white rice. And that would only take 20 minutes. I always loved eating that dish because it was so simple, but very satisfying. There's like a version of that in, in the book as well. Okay, so. I was going to say that's, so you, you've kept some of these recipes and updated mm. them. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, a lot of the dishes in the book are, yeah, like they're either reflections of foods that my parents made me or like foods that my dad used to cook just coming home. I really wanted to elevate or not even elevate, but just celebrate style dishes, things that, you know, you would see in a typical first-generation immigrant household that don't usually get the flashy food media spreads, but have a lot of heart and a lot of story. And so um, those were the kinds of dishes that I was drawn to when putting together, like, the recipe list. And so there are dishes that are more traditional, like the salmon, the soy glazed salmon that my dad used to make, um, or the scallion pancakes. But then there's also, like, homages to some of those time periods that me and my dad had when we would go through drive through So there's a, um, there's a play on the Big Mac recipe in the book as well that uses the patty instead of a beef burger is a traditional pork, um, pork ginger scallion kind of mixture that you would typically see in like dumplings, but made into a patty and then turned into a Big Mac. So it's, yeah. And the goal is to basically, yeah, pay homage to both my dad, but also to pay homage to my Taiwanese and my American side and to be able to combine them and celebrate them as this weird mishmash together. Yeah, I think maybe one might make the mistake of thinking that because it's fast food, it's not important somehow. Mm -hmm. But it's mm -hmm. like, this is your experience and it is all mm -hmm. valuable. So I, I think that's yeah. really quite profound and, and quite yeah brave in a way not not Thank brave you. but no i mean whatever vulnerability always requires yeah. some bravery there's another story that you tell in the book related to a dish called bing that's about how these recipes aren't just a connection to the past it's like you're kind of it's like you're introducing your boyfriend to your dad through them can you talk about that yeah so bing in general the term bing means essentially like flatbread and it is a category of different types of flatbread. So scallion pancakes is essentially a form of bing. Okay. They're like a thin-ish flatbread that is layered and it's savory and you can get them straight. Some people will put like eggs on top of it. So you'll make this like wrap of a fried carb with an egg omelet and then you can put a red sauce on it. You can put basil on it. There are a lot of different variations of it that you can make. I love eating it with marinated beef so that you can like get beef and then just like essentially like stew it so that it becomes tender and then you slice it 
and it absorbs a bunch of soy and ginger flavors. And then you put that into this pan fried flatbread, wrap it almost like a burrito. Mm-hmm. And you just eat it with some either pickles or you can put cilantro on it. And uh, it's like a distant cousin of a taco, essentially. Right. And then, yeah, there's like a lot of other types of um, beings. So you can you can put yeast into the dough and make it into almost like a bread. So it's like a, it's essentially like a flatbread that become like a giant piece of layered bread i would describe them as like crepes so they're essentially egg egg versions of it where it's like flour water and egg and then you can just like pan fry it um and then there's baked versions as well which i have in the book too where they essentially are um you can make them into like clam shells and then you can like put things in them and so um so yeah so there's a, a bunch of different types of thing and um all very delicious and all very carb heavy so sure <laughs> yeah so can you i mean the way that you talk about being briefly in that mm-hmm. letter is you present it yeah. as something that would connect your father to your boyfriend um <laughs> can you talk about that it's interesting because i met my boyfriend mm-hmm. after my dad passed and so it it's like weird to have this whole life with a person like my dad and then have now my boyfriend who's never met him two people who are very important in my life never meeting each other Mm -hmm. and so i feel like i find myself trying to um connect them together in other ways so for me food is such a nostalgic thing that has so much memory tied to it and so i feel like i use food in the dishes that he would cook and use the rituals that we did together and bring them to my boyfriend and teach him too. So it feels almost like a bridge through food to have my boyfriend have a better understanding of this person who he's never met, but you know, someone who's super important to me still. And I find that it's really cool to be able to use food as a way to get to know someone, even if you've never met them. When we cook these dishes like scallion pancakes or if we're making salmon or if we're folding dumplings, they're like a catalyst for memories that I can bring up and it's like spark stories that I might not remember before, but then just the smell of a dish or like the flavor of a specific seasoning will bring that back up. And I love that that's a way that my boyfriend can get to know my dad and my family having to be with them personally. Elizabeth, remember when we started making this podcast? Boy, do I. It was two years ago. Can you believe that? Two years. I can because we were just so focused on getting it right and learning all these programs, right, to to try to make it perfect. Mm -hmm. If only we had heard about Anchor by Spotify. It's so easy. It makes everything better because it's all in one place. Everything you need. What kind of tools does Anchor have? It allows you to record and edit the podcast right from your phone or computer. Your phone? That means you could edit a podcast from anywhere, from from the beach. From the beach in a windstorm. In a windstorm. Anywhere, truly. Tell me about the hosting capabilities. Oh my gosh. You can upload that thing to any of the platforms. How much is it? It's absolutely free. What? If only we'd known that part 
a couple years ago. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. A former fashion photographer, Yuhi Su is the owner of Daddy's Got Chopsticks, a Brooklyn-based home kitchen that serves faithful recreations of dishes his father would make him growing up in northeastern China. Dishes that you can try for yourself if you live within delivery range of Daddy's Got Chopsticks through eatwoodspoon.com, a community-based online marketplace that connects customers with local chefs who may or may not have brick-and-mortar restaurants. In our conversation, Yuhi talks about growing up queer in China and the central role his father played in preparing food for the family. He talks about how he could instantly tell the difference between the soup that his grandmother prepared and the version his father made him, and how he landed on the name Daddy's Got Chopsticks. I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Yuhi Su. So how did you go from photographer to Daddy's Got Chopsticks? It was the pandemic. Okay. Uh... And I, I I stopped doing photography because I had at, at the beginning of the pandemic I afraid to meet other people and so I can't really do the fashion photography I was doing and so I wanted to find a job that I can do comfortably. I was feeling pretty lost, uh, but then my friends just come back to America and then. It was her birthday, so I made her a birthday cake. She told me I should totally try to work for their company, like try to sell my food on their platform, and so I decided to try it. Where does the name come from? They have a food exam or test run for all the chefs when they apply, and when I got accepted, I went to celebrate with my husband. There was the very queer bartender. We were just talking. I shared why we are celebrating, and I kind of wanted a name that night for my kitchen. So I suggested let's find some name like it's queer, it's gay, it's Chinese. Uh, the first one that the bartender told me it can be uh, Daddy's Little Dumplings, and I really like. The daddy there. It sounds queer, sounds gay, sounds much what I want to brand myself. I would not think daddy when I look at you right now. Like, do you, I, I mean, listen, identify however you want to, but I'm just saying, when I think of a daddy type, mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily think of you. How does daddy play into your concept of queer? I think... Especially when it comes to cooking, when people think about cooking, they think about their grandma, they think about their mother. And uh, for me, a lot of male figures played in this role when I grew up. Day to day, I, I had my hair down, but when I'm cooking, when I'm in my cooking zone, I had my hair up, I looked more professional, I look. I'm more masculine, and I think that's where my masculinity is in the kitchen. And that's why I think daddy fits me. Talk to me about your dad as a chef, or a cook, rather. I, I read you said that his cooking wasn't always delicious, but mm-hmm. he's the one 
who was always up early cooking for us, his ingredient choices almost became his sense of humor. What did he make? And what were these humorous ingredients? There are two very common dishes. One is cucumber and that, and then tomato and that. It's like two different, two very popular dishes in Chinese home cooking. And the egg is essential, but one day he just eats stir-fried to, a tomato and cucumber, and it tastes like a stir-fried salad or something. It didn't taste good, and my mom was like making fun of him all morning. I think he was just trying to do something different. And you sell stir-fried egg and tomato through Daddy's Got Chopsticks. Are there any other dishes that he made that you sell? The sour cabbage thing, um, mostly actually my grandmother make it, but everybody know how to make it in my family and he just made it occasionally. Could you tell the difference between his version of it and your grandmother's version? Uh, my grandmother will use pig lot. I don't really like to eat it, but my, my grandma loved it. She used it all the time. He would never use it because he know that I don't like it. What does pig's blood do for a dish? It makes him more like like a pork stock. So you add, for this soup, it's not a lamb soup. It just has lamb in it. So then what is the actual soup part of it? Chicken stock. Okay, so then your grandmother would put pig's blood into the chicken stock. When you hear the pig blood, you think it's liquid, but it's not. It's actually a solid thing. It's like a, like a tofu. It's just like a piece of blood. Yes. So what do you think your earliest memory of food and your father growing up in Harbin would be? That was after middle school. That's after we moved out of my grandparents' apartment. There were not like specific memory of he's cooking for the first time, but the memory is about him cooking every day. Like constantly, he's the one cooking, he's the one doing the dishes, he's the one cleaning. My mom cooked occasionally, basically was him feeding us every day. Is that common in Northern China? I would say no. I think he just loved my mom and me so much, and I wasn't the one gonna get up super early and cooking. My mom is definitely not stereotype Chinese mom. So you see the role had to be filled and you just do it. But I don't think he did it out of any responsibility. I think he do it to show his love to us. Mm -hmm. Like he never complains. It seems like his love language, you know, people talk about love languages with food. Is that something you inherited from him, do you think? I think so, yeah. Yeah. From him, from my uncle, my mom's sister's husband. He was a professional chef and he just treat me as his son. Like every time I go to their place, he'll make whatever I want. I think that's the first time... I see like cooking as a love, as a loving, caring thing. Because when I was living with my grandma, my grandma was making all the food, but she wasn't doing it out of love. She was doing it out of responsibility. I know she hates cooking. And that's why she cooked cook the 
sour cabbage and lamb all the time because that's easy. She didn't care if I'm tired of it or every time I go there, even if they need to fry anything for me, they will do it. It's very hard to fry things in the home kitchen. You need to use like a lot of oil and probably just waste it after you cook it. But he he would do that for me every time when I visit there. And I'm very picky on the spice. When I was younger, I hated garlic. I didn't like ginger at all, like those strong flavor. I, I couldn't enjoy it. And when my dad make it, he would not use any of that. But when my grandparents make it, they will just do whatever they want. Can you talk about how Northeastern Chinese food is different to what we may be familiar with as an American take on Chinese food? Northeastern Chinese food is influenced by a lot of different cultures. Because where we were, were, it's so close to Japan and Korea and Russia. We have a lot of stew and agriculture there is great. And we are very close to Mongolia. That's why we have a connection to all the meats. There's a lot of countryside in Northeast. And I feel it's less modern than other places like hot pot, Sichuan food, or Shanghai food, which is more sweet. Do you think that your food in any way has a distinctly queer sensibility? No. You don't think so? I don't think so. Do you think it's not possible at all or just that you It don't? is possible. Yeah. It is, it is very possible. And I think all these dishes are still very classic and not modern. Right now, I'm just recreating and learning all these dishes through my memory and at some point I think I will create my own northeastern influenced Chinese food. Are you out to your family? Yes. I, I came out to my mom when I was twelve. I had a crush on a guy and I couldn't hide it. So I let my mom know and I told my mom, please don't tell my dad. But my mom told my dad right after and I was afraid to tell my dad because I thought he will be more upset. But surprisingly, my dad was like super supportive and accepted me right away, but not in an expressive way. He didn't tell me like, oh, I love you, son. <laughs> but he told my mom that our son deserved to love whoever he wants. And that surprised my mom too. I never heard anything, like till this day, I never heard anything from my dad about how think about these things. Like we never talk about it, but I believe what my mom said. It's sort of interesting to me that your dad was such a nurturing presence and the way he communicated his love was through something sensual as food. And he was the one who's in kind of a a classic sense seems to be a more maternal role in your house. Why did you think that he might not be okay with it, with you being gay? Because we don't talk a lot. We don't have those heart-to-heart -heart talk. When he was with me and my mom together, he's more playful. He can do a joke or something. When it's just me and him, I think he has this father 
persona. What does that look like? Like a mountain. It's very calm. It's very not guarded, but you can't truly see what he's feeling or what he's thinking. Culturally, where I was born, the stereotype of northeastern Chinese people are very masculine. Even the female are like more masculine than other areas. What is the Chinese government's position on gay people right now? Like, how does that play out in real life for gay people in China? Right now, they are trying to hide gay people. The government are trying to hide gay people or news about gay people. Even on social media, when you are like trying to post a gay pride parade picture of New York or wherever you are, it's going to be very hard to publish. They will hold your post for a very long time, and there's a very high chance that you just cannot post that. How did your parents talk to you about how open it was safe to be? When I even I came out to my parents, I was still hiding. I was still hiding through till high school. And then I went to Beijing, where is more open about everything. I know my mom did a lot of research online about having a homosexual son, and I'm sure she did research about how to change it. And there was a face that she was trying to change me, or she was trying to hint me, or asking me if anything changed since we talked. Mm -hmm. But one day she was... We were talking about this, and then she cried. She let me understood her worries or anxiety more is actually about me being minority uh, in China, and she knows that I probably cannot have what I deserve here, there, and um, I think that was part of the reason she wants me to come to America too. How often do you speak with your family nowadays? We talk every day. We FaceTime almost every day. Uh, but we haven't been, we haven't seen each other for four years. How do they feel about you having a home kitchen business where you're making a lot of the traditional dishes that they made for you? They are very proud of me. <laughs> I can feel that and I can, I can tell they see how much this motivates me and how much I love this. They can tell like it's not just about cooking. There's a lot more about this that impact me and, and I definitely grew up a lot through this cooking journey. So what is it about then? What is it about for you? I think it's about sharing my connection to all of these dishes and I'm seeing it as a love language for myself more and more. I lost my grandmother when I came to America and I lost my uncle a few years ago and cooking these dishes there are a lot of memories coming back to me that I never really revealed by myself without cooking 
when I wrote down this recipe, sometimes I'm really touched by how much love that I received from family members. And before I decided to do this, I couldn't trace back to these memories. How does that come across through a recipe? What is that memory like? It's like a familiar feeling coming back to my body. Not just like the memory of taste. It's hard to describe when I taste these things, when I think about this dish that I made and see the color or the combination of the ingredients just bring me back to certain moments of my childhood. Tell me about your father and daddy issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think. <laughs>